Very interesting. Would you say that you are perhaps a bard? <laughs> I, I would not say that. Um, but if someone else all, said all, you all were because, a bard, what, what? only because it's embarrassing. Okay, so we just had Mike Daisy here, who has been called the master storyteller by the New York Times. And, and uh, the monologuist of his generation. And for those who don't know, what is a monologuist? What do you think? Well, how, how would you explain it's it? It's in the tradition of people like uh, Spalding Gray was one of my favorites. Uh, uh, Howard Zinn, uh, David Foster Wallace, he's been compared to all these people. Um, they're, they're people who deliver something directly to you. Um, in Mike's case, he does it on stage. And he's um, unscripted, right? And he's unscripted. So and he, sort of he a live a, improvisational He does a rough outline, and I couldn't think of any, and he's an avid Dungeons & Dragons player since uh, for a long time, and I couldn't think of a better guy to bring on BardQuest Empire. Yeah, we had a great conversation with him. He, he gave us a real great rundown of a lot of his... Uh, uh, a lot of his stories. He talks about all the faces of the moon, which is a 40-hour performance staged at the public theater that includes some elements of D&D. He talks and, a lot about Dungeons yeah. & Dragons in, in that play, and that's kind of one of the reasons that I think we wanted to have him on. Um, yeah, that was a great combo. And uh, yeah, stick around. I'm Phaedra Al Casey. And I'm Eric Jensen. And welcome to Bard Quest Empire. We are in the studio with Mike Daisy, and I'm Phaedra Al Casey. And I'm Eric Jensen. And this and is Bard Quest Empire. Thank you for joining us. We talk D&D and storytelling. Um, and Mike Daisy is actually, uh, uh, I, I want to say old friend, but we've really only really been real friends, I think, for about five years, maybe. maybe yeah, I guess maybe? we're at a certain age where that's no longer considered long. It's hard to make friends. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of funny, because when we're younger, five years is longer than the entirety if you went to college, it's like that one would go life. to college. Yeah, right, right. exactly. Yeah. So this time dilation thing going on, because yeah. there was a point in our oh, lives when crazy. five years would have been plenty. Yes, exactly, yeah, yeah, to yeah, say yeah. old friends. But but I, I really now like... Now you're like a drop in the bucket. Well, I really have always liked Mike <laughs> quite a bit, and I've always been a big fan of his work. Um, early on when I was a kid, I discovered Spalding Gray, and I always wanted somebody else in my life who was like that after Spalding tragically left us. And Mike Daisy is that person. And one of the things that you did, Mike, was a, uh, uh, we'll get to that in a second. What is your origin story as a storyteller? Like, how did you come to do this as a, as a job? How'd you join the business, kid? Well, I think it's interesting because I think you, you guys will appreciate that when you're an artist, one of the questions, one of the core questions always is, how did you, you come to do this? Yes. And so yeah. as a consequence, you're right. Like, it's the origin story. Yes. And just like we've seen in comic books, that story gets told and retold, like, uh -huh. over and over again throughout your history. And then you keep changing it. The fish um, gets bigger. Yeah, the fish gets bigger, but also you emphasize different elements. Like, you choose to tell it in different ways. But for me, um, I... Uh, I'm trying to think of all the different versions I've told and like what what is what is best here. I mean, one thing that's really true is I so I grew up in far northern Maine uh -huh. and I am descended from a family of storytellers. Like uh, on my father's side, everyone is a storyteller. Um, as a profession like that's no the, no one except me is dumb enough to make it their profession <laughs> brilliant enough no I one mean, else has know. been no one else is professionally a storyteller <laughs> everyone else found useful things to do with their life and simply are storytellers i am the only person who was like i can do nothing useful with my life i will <laughs> so only be a storyteller um but yeah Full going back several generations here, they're storytellers uh -huh. and um and I grew up uh, in far northern Maine, um, just so we're clear what that means. It's the part of Maine that you haven't been to, if you're listening to it's this. It's the... Uh, it's really not far Not brown north. part, let's put it that way. It's, There's no brown people anywhere. In that's true, Maine. although that's true in most of Maine. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. It's really... Uh, uh, one of the things that's weird about Maine is that 90% of the people live in the bottom third of the state. So even if you get up to the middle of Maine, which is like Bangor, uh -huh. people call that northern Maine. But uh -huh. if you get to Bangor, which, to be clear, Bangor is very far north. If you then kept driving three and a half more hours north, that's 
Wow. You get to this town called Fort Kent, which is actually the end of U.S. Route 1. Like, there's a sign in town where the road ends. Wow. And that is where I, I come from. Wow. So literally the end of the road. Yeah, it's How? very, very remote. What's the population? Uh, it, I, it, I believe right now it's like 4,000 right or 5,000. Okay. Wow. And when I was a kid, I think it was slightly less, but about the same. We, because there's not a lot of coming in and out of that area of Maine. It's it's called the county because huh. it's almost all one county. Yeah, it's sure. It's called the sure. County. And so people will be like, are you going up to the county? And it's like its own universe, including, and oh, people don't know this, they're, they're French Canadian up there. Montadzi. Huh. Mm. No, pas vraiment. He's and they're, uh, they're French Canadian. You know, yeah. I'm from Montreal. And then, oh, fantastic. Yeah, and then they, they come from there. Um, uh, and I didn't know this. And, They're uh, Acadien, basically. Yes. And, oh, and one of the things yeah. that happened, of course, is I, I can't remember which one. Was it the French-Canadian War? It was a, there was yeah, a war. The war of 1812. Yes. But they basically made all the French-Canadian people up there had to relocate. And they had one year to do it. And they were injured. Like, yeah, yeah, it was very, it was very cruel. Was a lot of people died up there. And the place they got relocated to is now Louisiana. So where I'm from wow. is actually Cajun. In terms of the feeling of it, except imagine it's northern Cajun, and it's really poor, and there we're not in a swamp yet, so there's no seafood. So and now, well, I come from a very <laughs> I come from a very small town too, about eight or nine thousand people. Minnesota, different culture, but very mm -hmm. far north and cold, mm -hmm. uh, n not too far, about three and a half hours south of Canada. Okay. Um, so I mean, at least in terms of latitude, uh, I, I understand. You got some the Canadian of it. accent. Basically. I do a little That's bit, um, but. But um, it's interesting being from a small town and having the interests that you have, um, not to segue too hard, um, but um, d how do you get a Dungeons & Dragons origin story coming from a small place like that where there's nothing but magazines? And at the time, I don't believe there was any internet. We're about the same age. Yeah, but there, how was, do no, you, there was no internet. Where was, where was your... What's your Dungeons and Dragons origin story, and does okay. it go back that far? Well, I mean, I actually think my Dungeons and Dragons origin story is related to my artist origin story. That would be the next thing to, to tell, which is I'm in this very remote place, and uh, I was uh, I was a, a very bright child, um, but I was also um, I was I was fat, and I was a misanthrope. Like even before, ah. I mean, actually, I was always fat, but I was also always a misanthrope, and so um, I really uh, loved reading, and um, and I had uh, made friends with some children in the neighborhood who were sort of wild and feral. These kids who lived across the street from me, um, they were the only people to play with, and they were a family of five boys. Wow. And uh, mm -hmm. they were varied in age so that like the one I was closest to was about my age. There was a kid that was younger. And, and I mean, I'm like 10 at this point. And there were some kids that were like in high school. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. so what happened is the older kids were like, we're going to recruit you. Wow. Because we need people to play this for game. our party. Wow. So you're going to play and you're going to learn how to do this thing. And they taught us. Oh, that is cool. It's a rite of passage. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wow. Are, are you? I, I don't mean to pry or anything, but are you still in touch with these guys? I mean, they, that's. I mean, that's the thing that you know. Lifelong friendships are born. Are born yeah. and, and rivalries. Yeah. No, um, I'm still in touch with a lot of the people that I've gamed with over the years. Do you remember yeah. the first character you played, or what their class was, or if you have any connection? I, to I that? do remember Ooh, my first character. My first character was uh, a fighter. Oh. Uh, his name was Bodus. Oh, wow. All right. Bodus Iron Wolf. Oh, yes. this is awesome. Mm -hmm. Bodus Iron Wolf. I remember guys. he Bodice had, a, he had a, a surprisingly <laughs> exceptional charisma and intelligence. They were both like higher than you would think. A, a smart fighter. fighter. Yeah. Okay. And a little personable. Um, uh, uh, um, yeah. Bodus Iron Wolf. Well, and did now That's, that was and did you was that did second you, edition or third oh no edition? first edition first edition, edition yes. right out of the box there were three classes only right like fighter no no you're thinking of like the original yeah uh -huh. but uh, uh, I generally played uh, I was taught in basically what they call basic expert okay. Uh, what was the box? Do you remember the color of the box? Oh, blue. Did it come in a box? Uh, blue the box. first one was Isle, red and then Isle blue. Of dread. For, Isle of Dread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. For okay. those two. Okay. And I'm, then, I'm um, late to the game, so I think yeah. my first intro was second edition. Right, so it's basically like um, there was the original ones that came out in like 74. Uh, and this is like the iteration after they cleaned up the rules 
and the the basic editions and the expert sets came out at the same time that uh, advanced Dungeons and Dragons was coming out. Right, right, right. And so we basically played a combination of um, basic and expert, sort uh-huh. of intermixed with first edition, the first edition rule books. But you started as a player. Did you DM very quickly after I that? I did or DM did pretty quickly, but I started as a player because... Well, that's everyone's I entry I drug. The, uh, I didn't own any of the materials, yeah. and it was very clear that it was like the older kids were like they were running the campaign, and then we were cannon fodder that was helping to ensure that they <laughs> yep. could play. And it was the yep. only reason we were being tolerated. Throw Botus at the beholder <laughs> or whatever. Botus <laughs> had a lot of problems. Yeah. <laughs> but what was the? Did you Botus Iron Wolf? What a great name. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you come up with plump. everything? Did you come up with, uh, you know, the background at that time? Or did it or just did, come to you? I like, how like did you Botus, feel like all that I happened? I feel like Botus had a very uh, uh, bare-bones background. Because we were talking, Botus primarily was a, a, a keep on the Borderlands, baby. Okay, I remember keep on the Borderlands. the classic module yeah, 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 yeah. B2. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, you know, the whole world of that module is pretty, like, it's a great module. It's a beautiful adventure that's really simply written. The Caves but, of Chaos. Yes. yes. And so he had a very simple life. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Like, I mean, he didn't, we did not yet innovate things like background. Because uh-huh. there right. wasn't a lot of background. It was like, it's he's the like, guy. I'm a fighter. I do He's the guy. Yeah. We're going. We're doing these things. You know, there, we were not yet in a, uh, a framework that had what you would think of as role-playing. And I think that was actually kind of... uh, I wouldn't go as far as say industry-wide, but I mean, I started playing, and it was like 1980. Right. You know? Yeah. Same time as me. And so, like, a lot of the things... There was not a lot of division between character and player. Like, a lot of the puzzles that would happen in games I would run and games that I would play in were actually like, here's a puzzle. You, the people at the the table, need to solve it. Yeah. Uh Like, there was no such thing as... An ability check because the ability was you, you have to figure out the here puzzle at the table, you, right? and if you don't figure out the puzzle, you, you're dead. Right on, wow. yeah, like that happens totally. A lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, as opposed to TPK. like make some rolls to see if your character can do it. Uh-huh. It'd be like, no, we just want to know if you have that, figured this out. I mean, actually, I think that may have had to do with the evolution of the game. I mean, it started initially as a war game, mm-hmm. um, which was right. you know and more about numbers than character and role playing. Like, there was a lot sense. more math, there was a lot more math, a lot yeah. of thaco. A lot of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, remember Thacko? Two hit armor class zero, guys. That's what that means. See, because yeah. I read all this stuff instead of heard about it like I can now on podcasts, I called it Thaco. Yeah. I also called rations rations and I called... Chameleons. Yeah. <laughs> no, not that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me. Yes. Um, English so, is a second language. So though. you did a show about this called All the Faces of the Moon, and it was a 40-hour performance uh, with of 29 chapters, and you talk a lot about Dungeons & Dragons during it. I do. I, I guess what I'd like to ask you before you get into talking about the show, though, is like, why, why do you think people play Dungeons & Dragons? Like, so many people play it now, and what do you think's the... Do you have any ideas on the impetus for it in people in general, or just for you, or... or oh, you... I have... I have... I have some ideas about it. Yeah. I think people play Dungeons & Dragons because it exists in a very specific kind of tension. I think it is an intensely social activity that attracts antisocial people. Huh. Huh. And I think those two things in tension with one another create really fascinating results. Huh. And is the is that connected to the storytelling impulse? I mean, it's kind of communal storytelling. It's a different kind of storytelling if you have a great dungeon master or a good dungeon master anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, I think that everyone I, I at its core, people love narrative and people love telling stories. So it creates a framework in which a story can be told cooperatively. Um, I just think that the sociological underpinnings, like there's the core storytelling impulse, and then there's what the game brings us. And I think the thing we often forget is that it really does attract people who have like a dreamy, imaginative aspect who generally would then spend their time in that aspect alone. And then it forces them, especially before the advent of online gaming, it forces them to be incredibly social because they have to go find other people and then they have to sit with them in a room and get along with them well enough to like navigate an adventure. And I think that generates this inherent tension uh, for the people uh, and makes the thing really crackle huh. because, mm-hmm. like, the people are uncomfortable because most of the people who are truly drawn to D&D uh-huh. are not extroverts. 
Ah, interesting. And so, so different this, than theater. Why, yeah. why do you say that? Why do you, that's interesting. Why do you why do you consider that? Speak more about that. Just in my experience, having gamed for many many years in a bunch of different forms, the majority of the people are are introverts. Huh. I also think that a dreamy aspect that causes you to fantasize about imaginative worlds that don't exist kind of goes along with someone who is more introverted. Huh. Like, I don't think you have to be introverted to play, but I think the people who stay, who are drawn to it and keep coming back again and again, tend to be introverted. Everyone in the group I ran for years was basically different types and flavors of, of introverted people. I think that's super interesting because my experience is that there are those people, but there's also the people that are in it to role play. And I feel like those people are maybe a little bit more like they want to be seen. And I associate that with extroversion, right? Like yeah. it's like that ability to play out. Maybe it's they're drawn to it to play well, out. The thing, I'm, right? But I'm an introverted extrovert. Well, I mean, I learned, introvert, I so learned I mean, to be extroverted through D and D, you know? Um, yeah. So can you, so I did too, a lot, like a lot of um, the things I learned about being more presentational, being more dramatic uh, came out of playing D and D. Oh, that's amazing. I just, I just, I love that. Well, so tell me about, or tell us about, so please tell us about all the faces of the moon. I'm just like so fascinated by it and, and the, the, con the content of it and like some of the, the, the points that you make with it. Well, I guess, um, well, the first thing to, to, because I'm sure people aren't, aren't familiar with, with my work. Um, uh, it's important to sort of underline that, um, and it relates to how D and D is related to this. So I'm um I'm an extemporaneous monologist and storyteller. So in other words, I don't script. So in the same way that someone tells a story to a gaming group, I tell stories to audiences. So when I make a show that's ninety minutes long, that means that fundamentally I don't script it. Do you have notes I, or anything you refer to? I make just... I make an outline mm -hmm. in the hour before the show. Okay. But what? then if you see me perform, I don't look at it. Very interesting. Would you say that you are perhaps a bard? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would not say that. Um, but if someone else all, said all, you were a bard... What, what, only because it's embarrassing. What class, but, um, what class, but what class not, is your profession? I'm not going to stop anybody I mean, let, else. You, let's say, you, let, let's break this down. You make a living telling stories. You travel from town to town. Uh, those you, those you, things are true, You have yes. an improvisational cadence. To your, so it's off the cuff. You're almost like you have to roll initiative to tell your story. Uh, uh, my friend, you were a bard. Our, friend, our second guest know. on Bard Quest I don't, don't want to cast aspersions. Um, <laughs> what? What? Um, what uh, okay, so so so. so I, I think so, that I just wanted to point that out before I talk about that specific show. I just think it's a, uh, 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 like in terms of like the form. Why I always uh, I've often talked about how D and D and things like um, speech and debate in high school uh -huh. informed. Uh, me becoming the art form that I, I, I that I am that I make. Uh, what informed that in large part was uh, speaking extemporaneously. Yeah, well, um, I was in speech and debate too. Uh, uh, instead of Spalding Ray or somebody like that, my hero was Eric Bogosian. So I totally. like, got into the one man person thing. Yeah, you know. Um, okay, so so um, so all of those skills though are you know outlining a thing and having a beginning, middle, and end of a story. Some thoughts about it. Um, telling the story, all of those are feed into being a dungeon master, which is like, you know, at least one of the reasons that we wanted to have you here among many others. Um, can you tell us about the play and like sure. how you get into it? And Sure. I mean, um, so All the Faces of the Moon was a, a kind of large show that I made at the public uh, a couple years ago. And it worked like this. It was a it was designed around the lunar cycle. So it was 29 consecutive nights. It didn't have a night off. Like every wow. night it happened again. And for 29 nights, I told a different story each night. And each story was a new chapter in one very large novel, basically. Um, and each night had a theme, which was the title of the night. And uh, my very good friend, Larissa Tokmakova, who's a, a wonderful Russian artist who I've known for decades, painted these huge oil paintings for each night wow. uh, that I consulted with her uh, about what 
the themes of the painting should be, and they were based on the cards of the tarot. And mm -hmm. so each of the paintings then became part of the arc of the stories that were told on the night. And when I would tell uh, each night, like at Joe's Pub, I would sit at a table, and then behind me would be the painting sort of <sighs> hanging in space and illuminated. And then that would be, then I would tell the story and that would be the show. And the show itself was a braided story about a character named Mike Daisy, who is very similar to myself, but is not myself, in a magical, fantastical version of New York City and the world that looks like the world we live in, but also there are vampires, but all the vampires... So like queens. Yes. <laughs> but all the vampires work on... on on Wall Street, like in one of those examples of like a metaphor becoming real and then you right. can use fantasy to make the metaphor painfully explicit. Like the the vampires literally, all the bankers are literally are vampires. vampires. Um, but in this world, in this like sort of complicated braided story that, that unspools, um, it takes place in New York and that's what some of the threads are in New York, but some go back in time and are in Northern Maine. And so they are about myself and other members of this group that I am playing Dungeons and Dragons with. And then the stories that they take part in are woven into Stories well. within stories. Mm -hmm. kind of yeah, there are a lot of it. stories within stories. And it's uh, like a, are those based on your historic games? Are those characters? Yeah. Or that's great. That's cool. Are you are in the game that's presented? Do you, are you a dungeon master in that game? Or are you a player? Yeah, a player, yeah. Interesting. Because I always was. I mean, other than early on when I was being taught, I, I became... First hit. I became... Um, you know, I, I ran games. Now, because you were explicit. in the novel, you had to convey Dungeons and Dragons to people maybe who didn't know about it. Like, was were you were you, like, did, did you are you did you does this Mike Daisy character philosophize at all in the novel, or is it mostly just straightforward narrative? I mean, does he comment on the thing that he's doing? At oh, all? he comments constantly. I mean, uh, you're going to get a lot of commenting because remember, it's it's a novel. I'm putting I'll make air quotes too. It's uh -huh. a novel, but it's literally told in the first person by the monologue is telling the story. So there's a lot of like me commenting on the action of a scene or on what is happening as I tell you the story. And there's multiple the narrators because the there's me talking about what I did in the yeah. story. And then there's me commenting now about it. And sometimes me just talking about the night we were in in the theater as though I'm not in the story, but it's all in the story. Because yeah. as it goes along about halfway through, it becomes clear that there are other characters at play. And eventually, in the story itself, um, 29 oil paintings that have mystic significance get found in a warehouse near Coney Island. And those are obviously the paintings that are, that hanging, are hanging behind, behind us. You. And like all these different things get started getting brought together as part of the, the web work of the story. Oh, right on. Wow, that's amazing. Was I, this the tower? Uh, I'm being handed a picture. Was this based on the tower? Yes. Brilliant. Yes, that's one of them. Let me see. That's a white, I was just handed a, an image, oh. which you can't see because this is radio. Oh, that is but so also, beautiful. Uh, can we ask you, how did you start out of this, and tangentially to this, how did you start DMing? And is, is the DMing process connected to how you tell a story? Or do you, can you talk about that or is there yes i started dming very specifically i started at recess in grade school with a couple of people specifically this one person james would play in my campaign and we play at recess wow. so we had short. no it was short yeah and we had no paper or documentation oh my god of so any kind to... or rule sets so it was basically and improv it, it was basically yeah and it, it, all i had was what i remembered from the uh, rule books I had seen so far. And I remember that we did oh, have cool. some things where we did random generation with flat rocks, where we would flip over <laughs> flat rocks to see what they would come up as. Ladies and but gentlemen, mostly, the first procedural. It was extremely open-ended uh, storytelling. Wow. wow. Did you do uh, impressions, voices, things like that, or did that not play in quite then? Uh, I did you know? some, but uh, I was a big believer then, and still am now in my, my work. Um, since I'm telling a story, I actually don't ascribe, though I mean I fully accept other people can do whatever they want in their universes. It's great. Mm -hmm. But I don't ascribe to the belief that people should... Um, become other characters. Uh -huh. Instead, I indicate other characters. Got it. So I would like 
perform like the man says, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. Like uh-huh. there's a little bit of performance, but you're indicating but you're still almost narrating. Like right. Because you're, it's like audiobook read. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's an audiobook you want situation. to make clear you're, you're still the narrator of the world telling this person who's participating in a story, but you don't want to become a person. At least I never did because mm-hmm. that would break the spell of the narration of the novel as or the, the DM audiobook. understood yes. oh, and that actually continued that's, um that's, that's a through line for my um when i performed these stories as well like like i performed many many characters in the course of all the faces of the moon but i make a point of not becoming any of them you frame it as this person says or... it's not just it's more like i don't um embody them oh i just like lightly touch touch on the so you could tell like oh he's altered his cadence slightly but it's not like still him i have become a person yeah yeah, yeah. since i'm primarily an actor and not a storyteller i'm a become i become right and that's my that's my go-to place but that's both are very valid ways to to dungeon master can i ask something about preparing for a show and dungeon mastering and when you're preparing a thing like what makes a compelling story or campaign or you know how do you want to frame it i mean what what makes a compelling campaign uh, yeah, we, well, we establish your bona fides as storyteller so what what do you think makes a compelling campaign well they're not for me they're not very different i mean it's one of the reasons i thought it'd be fun to do this podcast because like when i actually think about like how i became a storyteller making stories for D was very central to that so i hmm. don't actually think for me that they're all that different i feel like a lot of a good campaign it's like great design. There's a combination of rigidity and flexibility. You yes, want to know. create yeah. a sandbox environment where it feels as though there's a tremendous number of toys to play with for the characters to interact with. And you want it to feel as though they could do anything they wanted. And if they move into a new area, you adapt the level of focus to that area quickly. Now, no one can actually make a world with enough verisimilitude that no matter what they do, literally, you're always at 100%, no matter where they go or what crazy choices characters make. But you can create a universe where you know your players and you also know human behavior. Like, for instance, I knew my players well enough to know that if I gave them three or four different obvious options for what they could do, they would almost always choose the third option. Not the first hmm. obvious option. They'd be like, well, no, we're not going to go check out the, we're not going to go to the dungeon yet. We will eventually, but come on, we have to do, mm-hmm. they won't ch- choose the second option, which is often the, like, the counterfactual option. Like, what if instead uh, we try to, steal from the guy who's setting up this mission like they wouldn't tend to do that one Uh but they would go for c like but they often would go for c which is like maybe we should go to the swamp first find out what's going on in the swamp and maybe we'll get some clues for the larger situation swamp hag always so knowing i always do knowing the beats (laughs) of like how they worked psychologically helped immensely in like making it feel as though it was always real Huh. It also helped that I played a lot of other role-playing games. Like what? Like what? Tell us about some. Um, I, I played them early, too, which was unusual, because the same people, the same, uh, the older boys wanted uh-huh. us to play. I played a tremendous amount of Twilight 2000. I do not know, know that, that game. One. I'm a Palladium guy, but I do not know Twi- Twilight, Twilight 2000. Twilight 2000 is an Palladium. amazing game. And an amazing game to play when you're like eight. Was it also fantasy setting? Or was it No. Futuristic? Twilight 2000 is literally set in the year 2000. In a hyper-realistic, and I want to underline, hyper-realistic. So you had to avoid social networking? No, no, no. It's a hyper-realistic version of a post-apocalyptic future in the immediate future. Where, remember, this is like 1982 or so. so. And so it is a vision of 18 years in the future. Cold War. And there's been a limited uh, nuclear war across Western Europe. And you always start the game in Poland. And you are trying to keep a and you're members of an of an army unit, and you're trying to keep yourselves and your people alive to try to make it back to Allied forces, and you're cut off. Wow, that's pretty much how every uh, Twilight 2000 scenario begins. It feels like you just described a perfect railroad, but wow. it's almost it's, right? extru- it's not very railroady at all because you no? can just choose where to go. Like you can just pick. You literally have a map because you you would have one if you were 
But you, you just you, start in Poland. So you can you go start to, in Poland. And you can generally. go to any city, any town, any yeah, other. Yeah, you just like choose places to go, try to keep your Humvees running, try to like make gasoline out of like, uh, you know, try to siphon gas out of abandoned vehicles, deal with people trying to shoot you looters it was a it was an intense game to play when you're also the the game mechanics are incredibly um unforgiving so what uh -huh. happens is if so you get a into a fight uh-huh generally if there's a fight of any kind it's someone all does. over because uh -huh. someone on your team is going to like have lost a leg someone else will be shot and the medic's already hurt wow. like uh -huh. so you learn so very quickly to do unforgiving you do basically. as much avoiding avoiding combat skulking around uh, uh desperately trying to find uh, the remnants of Central so like Command. the real apocalypse. Wow. Yeah, it's very depressing. Mine was mine was Gamma Wars. I don't oh, know if yes. you played Gamma Wars. Yeah, I played Gamma Wars. Yeah, I mean that's like two or three hundred years in the future. Yeah, and, and also the tone is completely and, different. Yeah, Gamma completely different, World is like yeah. delightfully Gamma, bonkers. Gamma World. Gamma World. Yeah, yeah Gamma World. It's, yeah, it's Gamma delightfully. Um, uh, uh, it's bonkers. It's Gonzo. It's really fun. Like yeah, it's yeah. like you can be like I'm a raccoon. And yeah. Like, yes. <laughs> that's a good game. Also I like that. Possibly. Yeah. I yeah. played. Uh, we talked a little bit about this. Shadow Run. Shadow oh, Run. Yeah. Yeah. So it was futuristic, but it also you had cybernetics and hacking, and all. We also had vampires and dragons and elves and paladins. So that was a cool like synthesis. I like that they somehow merge the, these two things that I liked, although maybe I'm basic about that. So <laughs> what do you think, how do you, what's the best way to construct a compelling story? Like, can we get like in the weeds and a little wonky about like, you know, things like reversals and... and as either a storyteller or as a DM, yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, what or do you both. think, I mean, if I've asked that question already, but I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in what you think that is. Again, I'm a different kind of creator than you and I know what that is for me, but you know, like... So let me ask it in another way. How does that translate? Like when you said you create a sandbox yeah. and you have four or five different toys for the players mm -hmm. to play with and that sets them off on their path and you can zero in. Do you construct your shows in the same way? Do you have a sandbox yes. kind of stuff? Can you talk yeah, more about that? Yeah, it's similar to a sandbox. Like, yeah, tell us about that. Um, in other words, like uh, depending on the show, yeah. a number of set pieces are built like you know eventually we're going to talk about the things going on in Coney Island or we're going okay. to talk about the other step and one of the characters in all the faces of the moon is a, a golem uh -huh. like a classic golem like the kind out of like made out of clay not golem precious mm -hmm. correct precious made out of clay of and right. living for hundreds of years and not technically alive but drives a cab and so <laughs> Like, like one does. Like one. I mean, you have to do something to kill all the time. Now while you're it's Uber existing forever. I now um, drive the Uber. <laughs> so you, you know you have to get to all these storylines and touch on them, but you don't necessarily have to decide what order they will go in. Okay. And you right. don't have to necessarily decide even before you are on stage telling the story. Okay. So there would be flex in that show, uh -huh. mm -hmm. and sometimes the flex would be so great that it would be like mid-flight. It'd be like, well, I actually think we'll save that for next time. So I would cut something. I'd make a choice to In just the show. drop it and then drop it out and cinch it up somehow else toward the end. And then know like, well, we definitely have to go there for tomorrow. Because wow. that storyline like has to that has to start resolving because we have to get through more stuff. Wow. In a in a shorter term show, like a more traditional show that's only like 90 minutes long um i still do the same thing very often with like scenes and details like making the call in real time something that night necessarily. yes yeah. and by that night i mean like as i'm speaking as you're doing it yes. wow yes how That's much impressive how much i mean yeah. in fact i'm being really clear uh, yeah. i'm always cutting if for some ungodly reason i did one and i cut nothing it would always be entirely too wrong wow like, always yeah. like if i did a monologue and i was just like i'm cutting nothing tonight um, huh. It would be way too long. I had this show called The Trump Card, which is about I saw that the rise. I really of enjoyed that Donald Trump, and uh, that show. I blocked that it, individual it, out of my memory. Well, I, so I did it I before he to... was president. Oh, okay. I was doing it when everyone thought it was comedic. Funny. Yeah. Um, uh, even though the show didn't take that position on 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 him, um, if I ever did all the parts of the Trump Card, all of them together be about a three and a half hour show. Wow. But wow. I just never do all the parts of the drum card. You make a, a choices in real time as you're going through it. You, do, you make a cutting. Do you base the choices on audience reaction? What do you base it on? Stimulation yes. from the crowd? Yeah. But having said that, I think this is an important 
for people to understand, although it's weird because I don't think people ever really understand it, but it is based on audience reaction, but it's not as gross and clumsy as people think it is. Say more about that. What In other mean? words, it's yeah. never like they're laughing more. Now oh, okay. I'll do. Now we'll go to the cave of time. Right. Like it, <laughs> it's very subtle, and it happens very, very quickly. It's the same thing that's happening in this conversation. Right. We're making we're choices right now about talking. what we're saying. I'm speaking too quickly for me to think about everything I'm saying. Right. I'm literally speaking too quickly. I mean, most of us are every time we speak. As a consequence, there's something deeper in us that makes the choices about what we're doing. Right. And I let that part run my show. That's the muscle that I've developed. So like I would not be able to consciously, like I wouldn't have time to consciously decide what paths we were following in real time as we're doing a show wow. but that part is deciding and that part is definitely listening to the tenor of the room got it even afterwards people will be like what did you think of the audience tonight i'll have some feelings but yeah. like i won't be able to say really what i thought i know there's a deeper thing that happens on stage but i can't actually untangle what it is that's occurring it doesn't translate. I found for me, Dungeons and Dragons was a pathway to making sense of the world um, I, because it's imbued with story. But do you think that audiences in general are coming to a theater to make sense of the world or to be distracted or provoked? Or are there a variety of reasons that people go? Is there a common theme? And I know there's a common theme in players that you mentioned that you think is, is, is prevalent. I mean, is there a common theme with audiences? Do you know why audiences are, go to, the, go to a, a live space? for? I mean, although I guess during the pandemic, there was a lot of remote stuff that happened. So Yeah. I mean, I think that people come to theaters with a lot of impulses. I mean, the problem for me with that is how many of those impulses suck <laughs> i mean i hate to say it but i mean like it's really true like there are so many great reasons to come to a live performance but many times there are lots of terrible reasons like it's what my friends are doing and we're rich people and so we go to rich things or the tickets are already bought and i don't seen. know why i mean right, to be yeah. seen there's there are many venal crappy reasons to come but i do believe that there's a spectrum of um positive reasons that bring people to the theater and i often believe that like my job fundamentally is to tell a story that shines a light through the prism of that uh -huh. and some people will respond to that really strongly because of their particular wavelength that, uh -huh. that comes out of that prism and other people will just like have a nice time I've definitely seen it in my life. I've seen people have their lives changed by stories I tell. Uh -huh. And I mm -hmm. know other people there that same night, their their big takeaway was, I had a little that indigestion. You see, what happened <laughs> is... Mostly uh, I thought about how my stomach hurt. Let's break this down into game terms. Those people succeeded in their saving throw. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> the other ones did not against Mike Daisy's bard spell. <laughs> Do you remember a campaign that you ran that you're particularly proud of? Is there, is there, or is there, that you played that you had a lot of fun you, in? And is like, there, is yeah. there a, a sort of scenario of a campaign that you played where it was really compelling and, and just? Yeah, like, I, uh, I, I mean, I really only ran. I ran a bunch of campaigns, but when I think about it, there's really just one primary campaign. that continued that just yes i made one expanded. really large story for about i don't know six years wow and remember it was six years in childhood which wow. in adult huge years time dilation is now like about it 100 years what was the yeah. world like at the beginning and what what, what was it like at the end as you got better at it like what were what were some aspects of the world was there a big bad guy that you had or did you not think that far in advance or? and was it the same people that you took throughout the whole journey six years or uh, it was mostly the same people wow. um it was mostly the same people there were Always, I think any campaign has this, you have some people who just sort of drop in and uh -huh, drop right. out. Uh -huh. And so they were given sort of smaller roles. Uh -huh, uh, but then there were people that just were tent poles and they were, went through the whole experience. It was very much like a homebrewed, upgraded version of early Forgotten Realms. Okay, right on. Uh, Did someone play Dritzt? No, no, this is before, this before is like Dritzt. very early. This okay. is like uh, the first gray okay. box that came oh, out okay i mean uh the first one was a cover of uh, a writer and elven writer like being grabbed by uh what looked like an orc or something very savage okay and then and then I, I've, later I ones there's later, been many later editions period. now yeah, yeah, the yeah. first edition came out in 87 yeah oh. that would have been so i wasn't even this in the country was yet. like this was like 
from right around that time. Uh, for, yeah, it was like, yeah, and it, it was like 87 through like 93 or something. What elements of Forgotten Realms did you did you lean into? Were there particular parts of societies within it? That yeah, you I used to? I used like the central, I, I used like there a lot of the uh, world building ge geography. Mm -hmm. um, though as as the game went on and new supplements would come out, I'd be like, I disagree with it. Like <laughs> there was there was a lot of like shocking of things um, that I nope. decided weren't going to be helpful uh, from from my world. For uh, example, like geographical things or just characters. Yeah, a great things? example is that uh, kind of famously when the game went from first edition to second edition, they decided to have an. This is really nerdy. I hope you have please. This is what we're here for. Yeah. Um, when the game went from first edition to second edition, uh, they had an in-game event to try to explain which. Let's be clear. Years later, everyone admits there was no. They didn't need to do this. They decided to have an in-game event to explain the changes in the rules. Yes. Oh wow. And so the in-game event they called the Time of Troubles, which okay. was a huge thing where all the gods oh. came to the earth and wandered around as avatars. Some of them died. Some of them right. didn't. A bunch of crazy shit happened. Um, I was basically like, no, we're not <laughs> doing any of that. This is dumb. Uh huh. Got That's it. a great example. So Got then, it. great. After that, it, it affected the realms forever so you'd get a thing and they'd be like now there's bat and be like that's not there because yeah. that never happened we didn't do any of that that's not happening how did you run combat were you loose with the rules or did you or were you strict or how did you did you i find combat laboriously slow i love doing it and i love running it and a lot of my players love playing it but how did you how did did you did you go out to every way to streamline it or were you very much into the the, the, did you do oh, paper well, theater did you well do one models, man's or? fast is another man's slow but when people when people <laughs> do combat like uh, but my memory is that, like, we didn't do kind of famously in first edition. There's this thing called um, weapon speed, where uh -huh. there's a chart of the speeds of all the weapons. Wow. Um, that I literally don't know anyone except as an experiment to see how horrible it would be that used weapon speeds. Wow. So I feel like there's some things in first edition that, that people would just make it even look slower. back at and yeah. are like, it must have been impossible. Well, literally, we all ignored it. Yeah. Like, I don't know one actual person was like, time to calculate our weapon speeds. Like, no one did that. Um, so, in a way, it wasn't that complicated. Like, you rolled for initiative at the top, and then, um, you know, people went. And I remember we switched from uh, group initiative to, like, individualized initiative. And that was, like, a change I made over the campaign to uh, huh. create more verisimilitude, make it, make it a little more challenging and a little more... Make it seem more like real life. Mm, a yeah. little bit more. and um, But fundamentally, it's just a really simple like attack rolls. Remember, this is before third edition. So no one's like, I'm using this feat. Right. This yeah. is well before fourth edition and fifth edition, especially, you know, like where, where people that have like, is really like at use yeah. and at will effects. And people are like, I'm using my blinding shout. I don't know the names of them right now. Uh -huh, right, but they yeah. like literally, like if you're a fighter, Eldritch Blast. If you're a fighter, fighter, you're like, I hit it with my axe. Uh -huh. And then you're like, next round, you're like, I hit it with my axe again. Yeah. Uh -huh. Now, I feel like to modern role players, that seems really boring, and they're not wrong, uh -huh. except that what made it interesting is because there were less rules locking down what you could do, uh -huh. you could just, in my game anyway, just describe something, and then I would decide if it had worked. So there were a lot of like, there were a lot of called like, called shots and things I'm like going, that. Yes, yes. You could like, you make a called shot and you describe what kind of crazy thing you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then I'd have you roll and then I would assign a bunch of minuses because you said a crazy thing, yeah. but I'd say you pulled it off. And then we like, the thing would have happened. How would you do that mechanically? Would you set a really high difficulty class or would you just Well, do they it, like, didn't have secret? difficulty classes was then. Difficulty class yeah, they, then. Did, they, they didn't have it really. We literally didn't have difficulty yeah. classes. So what are you just so rolled I would have conceptualized it. It's not that different. I would have conceptualized it as minuses uh-huh so that then you know you're the number you need to hit is blank yeah like normally i need only a seven to hit this but this is because the thing you're describing this. is really hard so you're gonna need a 15 okay wow and that's, i would just do it that way well that's great I mean, it's not that different really than right. the other thing it's just less formalized the new system just made it less mathy honestly it's all the same stuff that's happening well there's less like, stuff to calculate i like the computer aspects of it because i was never really good at the math you know right. um it's, tracking characters is a lot easier now i mean for me but there are some there are some things that i do miss and like i i homebrew a lot so okay, okay. what else what else from your show uh, do you think is a significant observation about dungeons and dragons that that deeply interests 
interest you? Is there, are there any aspects of what you, obviously you're into the game. Are there things that you think about now that are, that are, 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 are new to your thoughts or, or have you, I mean, it's very popular now. I mean, yes, I'm sure you're aware of that. Yes, it's very popular now. Yes. Do you think there's anything particular about the pandemic that made people r- rush to it? Or no, I think it started before that. Although I think that um, Watsi's decisions about how to work during the pandemic, like, helped a lot. Like, like a lot of their decisions about how they've been pivoting, uh, making sure people can actually get. Um, PDFs mm-hmm. so uh-huh. they can actually like like coming up with a system so people can have electronic rule books they had done all that work before the pandemic happened uh-huh. yeah and so that enabled play, right? it we've been using it for work. how many years yeah we've been using the D beyond sort of character sheet printing system for your campaign for yeah like, I mean it's it's really helpful and yeah. it opens up a lot of conversations I think people know what their abilities are more and you know not everybody needs a player's handbook and uh, and I have, I have a funny thing that I feel like I should divulge which is one Please. of the reasons i'm so interested in this is uh so when, when i was when i left maine i went to seattle and it became a theater artist in seattle and also i was in seattle i worked at a company called wizards of the coast what and so i actually and i have you we a have bunch a, of friends our first wizards of the coast employee well oh, form, former former employee long ago Form, and also with no, on, with no important categories of things wait. I worked on. So, so wait, wait. Okay, I'm so interested in this. Did you know, like, what was your did job you know, title? like, Jeff D and All guys that like that? Or did you not, or were you not in contact with those guys? Was that, was that so much earlier? than? Uh, no, than this was, um, this was in the late 90s. Wow. And so um, I knew people that were working there then. The uh-huh. Wizards of the Coast Mafia. Um, and, um, and, uh, but I was, I was absolutely hired as a uh, temp oh i just literally when they were giving out temp assignments i knew what wizards of the coast was and i was like i would like that temp assignment yes and so i got myself assigned there and um i really enjoyed it wow simultaneously while i was working there this is like the late 90s and i haven't yet figured out that i'm ever going to move to new york or or make a living making art I'm as a bar making a lot of art in garages uh-huh. but it's not going anywhere i uh became friends with people who ran what was then a small game company and now was more like a mid-sized game company and a bunch of these people that were out there became very close friends of mine and now they've all like percolated to different locations in the game industry Wow. wow! Like so I'm like we Ray Winninger is a really good friend Rolodex. of mine. Wait, wait, who? I'm sorry, I missed the name. Who? Ray Winninger. Uh, help, help me. Who understands? He's these. the guy at Wizards of the Coast right now who's in charge of Dungeons and Dragons. Oh wow! Yeah. So See, he's yeah. like the guy who made the decision fundamentally about um, we need to make sure people have electronic ways to play early, and made that bet long before there was a pandemic. So That's you knew smart. him. I, I know him now. Know him. Wow. Friends. That's amazing. Wow. Okay. All right. So this is so interesting. Um, we got to pick your brain about that later. But can I ask a tie-in question? And I, I don't know. I feel like, in a way, D&D has kind of gone mainstream. It's no longer like the stuff of... Or it's not only nerds. Or you'll have the jock make fun of someone for playing D- D&D. But then they'll go, oh, I got to go raid with someone on Warcraft. You know, right. or whatever. Just oblivious to that. What do you feel or how do you think about it going more mainstream that way? Or do you think it has? Or is it still... Oh, I think it has. Yeah. I think it's gone mainstream in a huge way. The funny thing is I'm old enough. I'm just old enough that I was around for the first time that it was mainstream. What year was that? What was that? I don't know. The 80s. Oh, I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, I... With like Willow and things like that? Not or? just Willow. It was mainstream. Like, I mean, I lived through the satanic panic. Yeah, so right. did I. I lived through yeah. people like burning gaming books and yeah. like telling me I was going to hell. Yeah. Um, I lived through that whole period. But um, I do think it's really... Um, I think it's it is hugely mainstream now. Yeah, it's I think like, it helps that because of the existence of the internet and the ways our culture has shifted. There's also way more space for people to do something weird. That's probably right. the biggest difference. I'm not actually sure it's actually that much bigger. It's just that it's allowed to exist in a way that it was like it got too large in the 80s. And then it had to be confronted. It was literally the Reagan years. Like, huh. if something weird started happening, the culture really tried to eradicate it. Right. And I feel like then. one of the things that changed here is the power is running in the other direction. Like, right. the kids who are able to create these imaginative worlds, imaginative lives, people are like, 
well, we can't actually screw with them because, yeah. you know, the world's, it's, the internet's so vast, everything's so loud. Like, and there's so many ways to do it now with yeah. video games or Yeah, so, so I, I, I think one of the beautiful things is that they're allowed to, to flourish and the, yeah. all those flowers bloom. It's great. Beautiful. That's wonderful. Well um, said. Are everything... you playing right now? Do you play at all right now? Do you I'm not playing right now. Huh. Uh, I haven't played in many years. If you were to play, what would you play right now? Would you revisit Bodus Iron Wolf, or would you do something new? Oh, I would probably run something. Oh, you want to? You would DM. Yeah, I would. and and if, and if you did, what would? Do you have an idea of like how you start? Do you have like a, or would you follow a module? Or would you start from scratch? Or if I was going to run a campaign right now, I would run an Everway campaign. Everway was this Tell really innovative groundbreaking role-playing game that came out in 1995 okay. and um it's actually kind of amazing looking now is put out by wizards of the coast it was very popular but at the time retailers were buying the boxes of the game because they had to in order to get magic cards so it caused a glut on the market and so wow. the game eventually failed you're describing but, a gaming bubble a basically yes. TTRPG gaming bubble mm -hmm. like tulips or yeah. What are the rules of Everway? What Everway. The, what, what's the scenario? Of Everway, Everway is a beautiful role playing game created by Jonathan Tweet. This is a really brilliant game designer who went on no to make to many other other games. Uh, but fundamentally, it's a game that revolves around using something that is like a tarot deck called a fortune mm. deck to do all of the random chance things that occur in the game. There's no Instead dice. Instead of dice, there's cards. Um, okay. it's, uh, it's built around an incredibly humanistic world system of like a, a, a many-sphered world where you're sort of traveling from world to world. And it includes in the game hundreds of these cards that have like fantastical art on them that was intentionally made to be multicultural and come from hmm. wide variety of origins. In fact, if anything, it de-emphasizes Western traditions. So like most of them are like Indian backgrounds and all these wild uh, images. And then you use those cards to visualize your characters and create your characters. And then uh, they're used in the course of telling the stories. Wow. It's a beautiful game system. That sounds like a it's, satisfying way to it's think. It's just getting yeah. reissued right now. Like they're coming out with oh. like a, a new edition of Wonderful. it after many years of it being out of print. Uh, and it's uh, it's on Kickstarter. You can actually find it. It's oh, wow. A wonderful, wonderful thing. That sounds wonderful. Um, I would, uh, I'm not pitching myself or anything, but I would love to play any, any RPG game uh, that, that you that you uh he is totally pitching DMs. himself i'm totally pitching myself yeah he's absolutely but pitching you know himself. i mean if you if you need second. if somebody drops out one day and you need an extra guy I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, i should I'm at maybe your there's a waiting period <laughs> we'll need your third grade teacher's name and your blood type now would you would you ever broadcast something like that or would you do it for yourself? would you do it on twitch or something like that or would, would you, you just ever do it private is i've never imagined broadcasting it but it's being done a lot no no i know all about i know all about that universe <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I suppose it's possible. Huh. What are your thoughts on? Have you ever tuned into any of those? Do you? Uh, I have. Yeah. What do you I have tuned in? What do you think of watching other people's games? I find it a little weird, but I, it's fun sometimes. I don't know. It's a I I, uh, I find it largely unbearable. <laughs> um, but um, uh, what works way better for me is watching like a YouTube compilation thing of like best moments of something or other. Right. Uh, because thank God someone's edited this down because I I, I don't want to watch I don't the watch entirety of someone else's session. game. Yeah, oh, I, yeah, I mean, not, if you're not playing, I find yeah. it difficult. But uh, having said that, some of that is because of stylistic differences that we've actually touched on in this conversation. In the DMing. It's a DMing in and then also in the players. There's like, I think because the people who are choosing to have successful, who are doing this successfully are leaning into it or like have a background in as actors yeah. and are performative. It's highly performative. Mm -hmm. It's and more extroverted in a way. So it yes, takes out And I think that. that's yeah, great yeah. for them. And I'm glad people like it. It's wonderful. But you don't connect to it in that it way. It doesn't have a lot to do with like what I think of doing, which is totally yeah. fine. Um, I think it's great that it exists. And I'm really glad uh, I, the games I are becoming popular. I think find that's great. It makes a really fascinating juxtaposition. I don't know if that... If you felt that way, that someone's pulling you into role play sometimes, but I love that. I love when I'm like at a table and I'm like role playing heavy, and like someone that wouldn't role play, like gets into it just a little more. I feel like I'm, I don't know, a, a 
pusher. At that <laughs> <laughs> and remember, this is also this is also a byproduct of my age, right? Yeah. Like I'm not young, and I lived through the period also in the '90s where all of the angsty role-playing people showed up and were all that was me. vampires. That was me. I, and I they played all that. played hey, vampire. Listen, and not only, not only did they make us like a... play with them, they also like would often dress up. And so some of oh, us yeah, yeah. were it just was a little bit... Some of us were just a little bit like, okay, <laughs> come on. Like, can we just you tell an imaginative story? Like, why like, do we have to become literally have to have fangs at the table? <laughs> it just seemed like a lot. So I think there's some early programming in that for me as well from that. Right. On. That's so funny because for me, I was in not in it was inducted almost at the same time as D&D &D with the stuff. I played a lot of White Wolf. I did get more into like werewolf or mage. I thought that was mm -hmm. more, more cerebral and like, you know more for me to hook into but no like i like those better too yeah. but everyone was always playing vampires well, so i didn't I like have a choice everyone was playing vampires so yes. you had to like jump in a vampire game yes. if there was something going on <laughs> yeah no i actually found i came back to gaming when i was when i was doing uh bronx's burning we played the new york yankees and one of the guys there a guy named mather zickle was a, a, a heavy gamer and he introduced us to all sorts of games that i hadn't played before um uh not gosh. tabletop role players like more like Board yeah, games, Catan, Catan, you know, stuff like yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, you know, I find that stuff very satisfying. Um, and all that stuff has kind of been influenced by a lot of the same stuff we're talking about, I feel well, like. Well, sure, a lot of the fantasy yeah. settings. I mean, Magic the Gathering is pretty much like a card game well, based the, on I D &D. mean, the 70s and 80s for me anyway, I mean, science fiction has always been interesting from the 30s to the 50s and stuff like that. But the 70s and 80s to me were all, I mean, like the Shannara novels were out. Lord of the Rings was, you know, had been reissued again. And mm -hmm. the cartoon came out. And there just seemed to be this like really interesting time. I mean, but like being into D&D &D at the time or being into like Ralph Bakshi or somebody like that or Wizard the movie like it was sort of like being into punk rock like you really yeah. had to hear about it somewhere for nerds yeah, punk yeah. Rock was punk did, rock. Were, did you also do other things did you collect comic books were you into that life at all um, or? I uh, did not collect comic books instead but I was really obsessed with like when Marvel would come out with those issues those limited issues that were like the encyclopedia of the world Oh yeah, 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 I yeah! I had a bunch those. of those, like so inside the X Men universe. Like, I was all yes, I was very yeah, yeah, much yeah. like I don't actually want the. Con I just want you, you want to the tell annuals. Me. I want the world building the of the world, yeah. and I don't necessarily spoken need like, like all the stories. Spoken like a true DM, like I don't yeah. care what you do. I want to build this story. From it's true. Yeah, I loved I loved those because it gave it gave stats for Nova, and you could sort of figure out who was stronger. And, yes, and, and and yeah, I found those very. I also satisfying. played a lot of uh, Marvel uh, TSR. Uh, uh, which that? was the creators of D&D &D back then, uh -huh. uh, uh, TSR had a Marvel superhero role-playing game. I oh, did not know that. know that. Yes. That's interesting. Wow. Were the Where rules... you built your hero and you mm -hmm. gave him like a flaw and a weakness. Yes, and totally. Like that. Yeah, uh, mine That's was Villains and cool. Vigilantes, which also came that out. Was a, I played that one as well. Jeff D., one of my favorite cartoonists, was I, I believe he, he illustrated a lot of that, and he illustrated a lot of that early D&D &D stuff too. I really loved the cartoonists and the art because I was a nascent illustrator. So, Mike... Uh, this is we don't we're not sure exactly when this is going to come out maybe in a month or a month or two do you have anything that you're working on that you want to plug or that you want to talk about or that you want to pitch is it terrible to say no i don't no, no i mean not. It's like, up to i you. don't actually have anything in particular that i'm um a twitch stream um, um i will I'm, no i will say this <laughs> i'm um i'm working through a large um a large project of uh revamping how my work that's traditionally always been in theaters uh, and getting it online. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I awesome. have like 15 years of recordings, including this whole novel of all the faces of the moon. Wow. And so, so can... if people are intrigued by this, feel free to Google because if things have gone well, you'll probably be able to find it and listen Great. to it. Uh, somewhere online. I'm planning on making it available again. So. All the Faces of the Moon and many of Mike Daisy's other shows are going to be available online soon. Is there any place that people can find you or uh, an at or Usually a website? Just, just my name is enough. You're on Twitter? I'm on um, Twitter. I'm on the Facebook. I'm on the Instagram. Great. Way too much. At, on all of them. It's at Mike Daisy? Yeah, I think it's M Daisy for okay. most of them, but some M of them, it's not even consistent. Some are M Daisy and some are Mike <laughs> Daisy, but if you find a guy, he's posting a lot and he's um, fat and he looks like he likes D&D, that's probably me. You're, um, you, there isn't like an impersonator who's nearly me. That's, just for that's that, probably me. I'm going to start the bot site that's going to impersonate you right um, I, now. I have one more, keep you on your toes. I have one more question. Uh, is All the Face of the Moon going to be published as well as a, as a, a piece of writing or is it just, uh, just going to be a performance? Well, you know, I've never I, I don't 
think I like the just a performance uh, part. I'm sorry. But, um, no, I, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, how could I say that? Uh, no, copy that. We're sorry. 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 I it's have okay. to. I'm from. I, I, I'm awkward right now. It's, it's a okay. post-pandemic it's okay. awkwardness. It's, it's just it's like politi- politically, salad. it's my job to stand up for oral storytelling. Got it. Copy there that. isn't a lot of it. But honestly, no, there isn't any plan to transcribe okay, cool. it and then and then publish it. Although I know, roughly speaking, that if I did, it's about twice as long as War and Peace. <laughs> okay. Whoa. <laughs> that is a Words add book. up. If you say them out loud for 29 nights for 90 minutes each time. It's, um, it's a big It's a big book. Well, or I can't, it would be. Like, I can't thank you enough for being here. Like, um, I, It's nice to be your friend. And, you know, thanks, especially after this pandemic. It's just really good to see your face and, and see you happy. And, and my best to you and yours. And, and just thanks for coming. Oh, yeah. thanks for having me. And uh, this episode's most D&D song ever is The Dungeon Master's Lament by Amy Vorpal. You can check that out on our Spotify playlist. And find us on Instagram at bardquest underscore empire. And on Twitter at bardquest-e. Bardquest Empire is... Well, no. <laughs> Let me do it again. BardQuest Empire is produced by Bang and Tara Bang and Zach Murphy. Executive produced by Jessica Blank. Theme song by Tasha Blank. Sound effects provided by Darren West. I'm Eric Jensen. And I'm Phaedra L. Casey. Thank you for joining us on BardQuest Bard Empire. Empire.